Uh, as we get ready to open our Bibles, I don't know if you've been here the last, uh, couple, last month and a half, but we've been going through the Lord's Prayer. And so you'll, you'll need to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to find a prayer that Jesus taught us. He didn't teach you this prayer so that you could recite it word for word all the time, although that would do you good, I'm sure. But he taught you this prayer as a way to pray. He didn't say pray these exact words every day. He said pray in this way. There's so much in this prayer that, you know, branches off into every type of thing we pray. And, and it really is about, you know, readjusting and realigning your heart. I've said this so many times, and I'll probably say it for the rest of my life, but um, one of the ways that I, I kind of self-adjust and I have to catch myself and see if I'm being more affected by culture or more affected by God is, is that there are times in the Bible where Jesus says things over and over again and seems to be a big deal to him or, or the apostles say something over and over again and seems to be pretty important to them. And I just glaze over it because it doesn't seem that important to me. And so I skip to the verses that seem really important to me, the stuff I really like, the stuff that really seems to be hitting me right now. But I've learned to go back and say, why is that so important to you, Jesus? Why do you keep saying that? And, and it could be that our culture or our, even our church culture doesn't value some of those things. And, and we just think, well, I don't know. That, that's nice, but I don't think about it that much. What I've learned is to take my cues from Jesus. What does he think about a lot? I want to think about those things a lot. What does he say a lot? I want to say those things a lot. I want to learn to be more like him. I want to learn to think more like him. And it, it turns out that it's a good way for you to figure out, you know, because we're constantly molded by the culture around us. When we're not meant to be molded by our culture, we're meant to change our culture, not be changed by it. Uh, but you spend most of your life out in the world consuming advertisements, um, having interactions, looking at things. You don't know even when you're being sold to, but you're, you're being advertised to all the time. And there's, there's certain things that are pushed in advertisement. One of the great things is, one of the biggest things in advertisement is to convince you that you're not happy. The first thing they got to do is steal your joy so that they can sell it back to you. Isn't that devious? You were perfectly happy with the phone you had until they told you, that phone stinks, but we have a new one. They don't make you miserable until they have something new to sell you, and then they make you miserable. We just flew on a flight that now offers Comfort Plus. But as I walk by Comfort Plus, I realize, I walk by Comfort Plus to my lowly coach seat. <laughs> I walk by Comfort Plus realizing that's the seat I flew in 10 years ago, and it was just a regular seat. But they took some leg room away. They took some comfort away. They squished you a little bit. So that now you go, I probably do need to upgrade. Because they, they, they have to make it a little miserable for you so that you want to spend money on an upgrade. And you say to yourself, well, it's not first class. It's just comfort plus. There's nothing wrong with comfort plus. I encourage you. Get your comfort plus. Enjoy it. But the, the thing that makes me a little, that little stubborn piece of me, that resents them, resents this. They are selling me what I used to get for free. We'll give you a discount on your bag fees. I didn't used to pay bag fees. You're giving me a discount on something I didn't ever used to pay for. 
We pay extra to zip through the line because they made the line so hard to go through. So the world's idea, and there's, realize that there is a spirit of this world, and it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what type of government is in, it doesn't matter what age you're going through, there's always going to be the spirit of the world. And the spirit of the world is, is, is a spirit of anti-Christ, okay? It, it, a lot of times we think anti-Christ, we think of one bad dude. But the Bible says, in, in fact, 2,000 years ago, he said this spirit is already at work in the world and will be. Now, there, there, I believe there will be a person that really takes that to the next level. But he said this, that spirit's already there. And so it, it works against God. It works against Christ. And so here's what we do. We come into a, a morning like this and we, we go through a wonderful detox where we come out of the world and we go, this is what life is. And we don't do that so that we can just rush back to church and, and rush in the building and this is where we feel God is. No, we, we come together so we can remember who we are and be equipped and ready to bring God into the world. So, and he's already there, but to bring his presence, to bring his kingdom, to bring all those good things into the world around us. And so you're not meant to just come here for escape. We're meant to fill up here and bring it wherever we go. And, and so I go back to this prayer that Jesus prayed, and I'll admit to you, at different seasons of my life, there were different parts of this prayer that were bigger to me than others. And I, what I'm doing my best to do as a discipline is to go back and say, when I read this part of the prayer, I tend to glaze over it. Why? And I go back. I say, what is important about this? And it's been so life-giving to me because all of a sudden you discover treasure you didn't know was there. And so I'd love for you to go back to Matthew chapter 6 and, and let's read it together. And as is our practice as we've been going through this, I'm going to read the entire thing. And then we're going to go back together and focus on one piece of it this morning. In Matthew 6 verse 9 it says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, or let your name be held as holy or revered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Going back to... Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We did something a little unorthodox, which is last week we read the verse after this one, and we're going backwards this week. So if that messes with your head, see ya, we love you. Um, no, just kidding. Love for you to stay and tough it out with us. Give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes it's easy to forget how big that verse is how big that prayer is. I think this is a prayer. If he's saying, give us this day our daily bread, this is probably something in some form you should be praying every day. Right? Because if you just say, give us this day our daily bread once a year, it doesn't really make sense, does it? You should just ask for yearly bread. <laughs> give us this day our daily bread. Is that implying that if I don't pray this, God won't do it? No. But it's a reminder that everything I have today comes from him. Everything I need today comes from him. Not only does it come from him, but you know Jesus would never pray a prayer that is against the will of God. Right? right? 
So if Jesus is telling us to pray, Lord, provide for me this day what I need, then don't you believe that it is God's will every day to provide for you? That this is God's express will. And this is how Jesus prayed. Jesus would never pray a prayer that God didn't want to answer. He would never teach you to pray a prayer that was against the heart of the Father. That's what it's like to pray in his name. To pray in his name is not to use his name as a magic abracadabra. To pray in his name is to pray as he would pray. Jesus is teaching us here. Give us this day our daily bread. That's huge for me, and it should be huge for you. No matter what stage you are at life right now, whether you are in a stage where it is a stretch to believe that your day is going to be met, or whether you're in a place of, of great abundance where, you know, you're having to remind yourself that it is still God that's providing and not just interest off of something or not, not just the, the, the fruit of a business that's prospered, that you remember no matter where you are in life, I need him every day. I need him. I need what he has. Now, I know that we could, we could see bread as a lot of things, you know. Uh, in fact, we'll talk a little bit about this this morning, that, that there's more than one kind of bread. When Jesus fed thousands of people, all of a sudden his crowd grew. Because I'll give you a, just a little tip. If you feed people, more people show up. <laughs> Jesus fed people. So they, they, he got, his crowd just ballooned. In fact, once he fed them, they wanted to make him king. You know, all right, you, you, a king that feeds us is a good king. Most kings just take from us. So we want to make you king. And Jesus stopped them for a minute and he said, you know, I fed you. And he said, that's why you're following me is because I fed you. But he said, you guys should seek for the bread that doesn't pass away, the bread that doesn't perish. There's a bread that doesn't mold. There's a bread that doesn't go stale. He said, I'm the bread that came from heaven. I'm the living bread. He said, if you eat from me, you'll never go hungry. You'll never be without that, that this is the bread that, that is eternal. And so there's a side of that when we say give us our daily bread that we understand that, that he is the bread of life, that he is everything we need. But I also believe that when Jesus was praying this particular prayer, he was talking about provision in a very natural, in a very practical way. I believe that's part of this prayer. I believe it should be part of your prayer. And, I, and I, one of the reasons I believe that is because he goes on in the same conversation just a few verses later to tell you about how you shouldn't worry about what you're going to eat and you shouldn't worry about what you're going to wear because you have a father who cares about you. Remember how we started this prayer, our father. You see, asking God, trusting God for provision changes drastically when you approach him as father. It changes everything. You see, as long as you're approaching him as a boss, then you feel like when you walked into the boss's office and asked for a raise. It's awkward. It's stressful. Does anybody here like asking for a raise? Sadie's going up and down. I'm not sure. <laughs> She's a baby. She doesn't know. Nobody here likes asking for a raise. Even if you're your own boss, you don't like asking for a raise. Sometimes that's harder. Do you like asking for vacation time? No. Do you like asking if you can go home early? Nobody here likes that. It's a stressful conversation. You, you don't like asking, maybe you do, but I don't like asking government for anything. 
Some people are like, yeah, baby, it's there. <laughs> I'm not, I, don't, I don't like to take something I don't need. You know, I, I don't like to ask. I don't like to expect anything from the government. I like to just be, you know, like we take care of our own. That, that's what I like. It isn't always that way, but, you know, that's, that's what we like. And so when we look at God as a king or we look at him as a boss, asking for daily bread is stressful, it's fearful, it's awkward, it's something you'd rather avoid. But now, when you think of him as a father, everything changes. That's a wonderful thing. It is a God-given thing. When you came into this world, you came utterly dependent on somebody. You couldn't feed yourself. When you came into this world, if you tried, if you weren't taken care of, you would die. Somebody had to feed you. And you had no ability to make that happen. The, be- the only thing you could do was cry. That's all you could do. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't go to the grocery store. You couldn't open the refrigerator. You couldn't shake your mama. You couldn't do anything other than cry and, and be fed. And there is something about that that experts tell us shapes you for the rest of your life in a good way or a bad way, depending on how it went down. Right? Some of your most formative years, things that you'll be dealing with when you're 60 are things that happen in the first three years of your life. Now, I'm a believer in what God can do. So God can fix what was broken there. God can heal it and restore it. So don't ever think you're stuck with what happened to you when you, when you were a kid. God can restore. I've seen it happen. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But, but let's just all agree that those are formative, really important years in your life. And one of the best things you learn in an optimal environment, in the best environment, is that you have a mom and dad that take care of you. That you have parents that you can depend on. You learn to depend, and it actually teaches you how to love. It teaches you how to love and be loved. Teaches you trust. It teaches you security. I read, I read studies about kids that grew up in the inner city of Chicago and how they were on high alert all the time because they were never safe. And one of the worst things about being high alert all the time is that your adrenaline levels are through the roof. And when your adrenaline levels are through the roof, you are in fight or flight mode and your brain is not optimized for learning a thing. All your brain is doing is saying survive. So there are kids that, you know, they can't take certain streets to school. They can't wear certain colors. And when they get to school, we we think, oh, why aren't you learning? How many ways can I teach this to you? And it's because they are not safe, because they are not secure, they don't know how to learn. Because their brain is saying it's not time for learning. It's time for surviving. We came into the kingdom with a lot of baggage. And Jesus says, give me that baggage. Give it to me. I want to help you. I want to teach you. Come to me. Jesus said, come to me and learn from me. All you who are weary, everybody who's got a heavy burden, and you know that whatever baggage or backpack you came to Jesus with, he doesn't say, if you have a light burden, line up here. If you have a medium burden, line up here. You losers with a heavy burden, come over here. We got a special room for you. No, we all had a heavy burden and we brought it to Jesus and he did not make any distinction based on your background, your childhood, your upbringing. He just said, bring it to me and learn from me. Come and take my yoke upon you. I've got a different yoke for you and it's, it's easy, it's light. So we can learn once we take his yoke, all of a sudden I can learn. All of a sudden, I, I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I'm secure in this. 
doesn't mean I live in a bubble where nothing bad happens, but it means that I'm in his, his bubble in a sense. I'm in his peace. Jesus said to his disciples in the world, you will have trouble, but in me you have peace. Isn't that interesting? He sent them into the world, but he sent them into the world in his peace. You're not supposed to be in the world without also being in his peace. There's something so hard about believing. Why is it so hard about believing in a father that actually wants to feed you? I like feeding my son. I like that he looks to me for provision. And no, it's not scratching an itch that I need just to feel needed. I don't hold back to the cereal bowl from him until I feel properly loved. I just like, I like taking care of our son. My, my wife loves taking care of our son. We love that he needs us. And not because we're insecure and we're, we're codependent, but because that's what a parent should feel. And it's good when a kid can say, I trust you. See, see Moses doesn't know uh, all of the things that we can't do. He just thinks we do everything. He doesn't know that if that thing breaks, we're calling a guy. He thinks I can fix anything. He doesn't know that when we make him craft dinner, I didn't make those little macaroni noodles. No, that's not the meal we serve our son every day. Don't call, <laughs> don't call child services on us. <laughs> when I think about this verse, give us this day our daily bread, I automatically go back to God daily feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. He did this to train them. He said, he actually told them before they went into the promised land that I'm doing this so that you'll learn something, so you'll be ready. He said, uh, you, your hearts needed to be humbled. And, and that sounds, when, when you say your hearts need to be humbled, it sounds like we're being taught a lesson. We don't think of that as a good thing. But your heart being humbled, literally in this instance means you had to learn how to depend on someone other than yourself. He said, I let you come to a place where you were hungry. Why? I let you go to the wilderness where stuff didn't grow. Water didn't spring up out anywhere. So you had to expect food to come from the sky and water to come out of rocks. They had to learn to depend on an unseen God. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night as we talk about remembering. So I'm going to repeat myself a little bit. I want you to turn there with me for a minute to Deuteronomy. And we're going to go to chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, one says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord, or literally which Yahweh swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Now listen, when you hear that, it sounds like he starved them, but he didn't, did he? He fed them every day. What did it mean that I let you be hungry? He means I, I, I let you come to the place where you needed you realized, I need someone to feed me. I brought you to a place where food didn't just grow. So you depend on God rather than your Egyptian slave masters or yourself. See, the problem with the Israelites is 
They thought God abandoned them a long time ago. Right? 400 years after Joseph settled in Egypt with his family, the Egyptians forgot about Joseph. They began to treat the Israelites as slaves. It got so bad that not only were they made slaves, but Pharaoh was afraid they were becoming too big and ordered their kids killed, their newborns killed. Can you imagine the PTSD you got to deal with when your whole, when you have a generation of kids wiped out? And you're not allowed to fight back, and nobody even tried to fight back. The Bible gives no record that people picked up their pitchforks or, or, or did anything to fight back. Can you imagine like lambs to the slaughter just saying, what can we do? They're killing our kids. How much, how much have you gone through to bring you to that point? So they cried out to God. They cried out, but didn't really expect anything to happen. They just cried out, and God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to deliver them. And Moses and Aaron show up. Moses, his brother, is named Aaron. And they show up, and they say, I want to have a meeting with your, your elders. I want to have a meeting with your leaders. And he got the leaders in a meeting, and he said, God heard you, and he wants to deliver you. And the elders, for a minute, began to hope, just a little bit, just a glimmer of hope. Maybe God's really going to do it this time. So they said, okay, we're with you. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, that's a dumb question. No. And everybody who thought it was going to happen just like that, their hearts got deflated. Pharaoh says, you know what? Just for asking, I'm going to make your work harder. And I'm going to tell my guys to whip you if you don't get it done. You see, you guys were making bricks and you had a quota. Well, you still have the same quota, but now you've got to gather your own materials. Have fun with that. You can thank Moses and Aaron for this. And with that, with that one move, you see, a broken spirit won't stand up against opposition. A broken spirit has one setback. One setback will cause a broken spirit to give up. One setback. Guys, let me tell you something. If you are following God, you can expect the enemy to hit you back at least once. But he has nothing on you. And if you don't quit, if you stay pressed in, if you say, no, nice try, you're, you're not going to get me to quit that easy. There is nothing in the world that can stop you. Nothing in the world. And so the best he can do is to try to scare you, thinking this is, you know, you know this is what your life's going to be like now. He, the Israelites began to say, oh, you've just caused us trouble. And the Bible says they were so despondent that when Moses went back and said, God heard you. Guys, this is just one. Pharaoh said, no once. That's not the end of the story. God's still going to deliver you. It said the Israelites couldn't hear him. They wouldn't listen. It says because the lowness of their spirit, the despondency, their spirit had gotten so low and so broken. It says because the lowness of their spirit, because of the cruelty of the Egyptians, they could not hear the, the promise of God. You know, I've met a lot of people who, because of the cruelty of the life they've had to live, stopped hearing what God was saying. Can't hear it anymore. You can, you can put their face in your hands and say, God is for you. They go, well, if God was for me, why this? Why that? Why this? You see, that's all the enemy wants you to do is just to question God's goodness, to question his love for you, to question who you are. So you'll give up. But instead, Moses and Aaron didn't quit. They kept going back and God delivered his people. But you know, it took 40 years to get that mindset out of them. 
It took 40 years for them to stop thinking like slaves and orphans. Because God said, these are my firstborn kids. He, he talked to them in a way he never talked to people before. He said, I'm going to give you a name you can call me that nobody, not even Abraham and Isaac knew me. I'm going to give you that name. I'm going to know you in a way no one's ever known me. You are my kids. You're my firstborn kids. And I would move heaven and earth to set you free. And yet, as soon as something got hard, they start thinking like orphans again. And they go, God brought us here to kill us. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You just thought it would be a good prank, a good social experiment to let us die in the wilderness? Thanks, God. It took them 40 years to begin to believe that God was a father, that he loved them. He says this, he said, I'll let you be hungry and fed you. I let you be hungry and fed you. You see, he didn't let them be hungry and stay hungry. He let them be hungry and be fed. So if you read that verse and just go, he let them be hungry, it sounds like God is mean. Sounds like he's cruel. He's starved. No, he didn't. He said, I let you be hungry and I fed you. I let you, I let you, I let you realize, oh, I need to be fed. Not by the Egyptians, not by my own hand, but by God's hand. He said, I let you start believing in miracles again. I let you start trusting me that I would supernaturally provide for you. Has anybody in this room ever had food fall from the sky? Oh, you're just wiping your nose. For a minute, you're just scratching an itch. I was like, Candace, have you? Cloudy with a chance of meatballs? Really? That's a miracle that you can't deny. Not only was it food, it was like angelic food. It was amazing, superfood. If, if booster juice could get their hands on it, they'd make a, just, just a killing, right? It says here, so that you would learn, I fed you with manna you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you. Wow. Your clothing didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Guys, people don't walk around a desert for 40 years and their clothes don't wear out and their feet don't start to swell. Some of you can't walk through Walmart without your feet starting to swell. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock so nobody thinks I'm looking at you. I'll say it. My feet get more tired at Walmart than anywhere else on the planet. <laughs> Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. See, discipline is a dirty word for us. We don't like that word until you read it and goes as a man disciplines his son. The root word of discipline is disciple. He's training you. That's what the word means. The word doesn't mean punish. If you hear discipline and you think punishment, relearn the word. It means training. So I was training you as you train your kids. I was teaching you how to trust me. I was teaching you how to depend on me. I was teaching you how to live in the miraculous. Therefore, you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him or to reverence him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. 
a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity. You won't be hungry. Without scarcity, you're not, you don't even have to try and it's there. He said, You'll eat without scarcity in which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are irons, out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you've eaten and are satisfied, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But beware, beware, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and you've built good houses and you lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, why in the world is all that you have multiplying? Because it was the blessing of God that they would multiply. So when the blessing of God actually is, is, is in front of your eyes, he says, here's what you've got to watch out for. Then your heart will become proud. You'll forget the Lord your God. He's saying, if you forget, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength, the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you will remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. He's saying... I, I trained you. The training wheels on your life were when you had to be in a place where if God didn't do this, we're going to die. So you knew if food comes from the sky, if manna falls from the sky, that's not a natural phenomenon. This is not just happening. God's doing it. If water comes out of a rock when a dude hits it with a stick, that's not scientifically a thing. You know, you don't just go to Bud Miller, find a big rock, and go, water. <laughs> Doesn't work. If it works, let me know. That's really cool. <laughs> water. All of this was so miraculous that they could not deny God was caring for them. But he said, I'm bringing you to a land that's just as miraculous. It's just as much me feeding you. But it'll be easier for you to forget that it's me. So you need to care for your own heart that you don't forget who's doing it. You understand what I'm saying? He said, you're going to come into a land and those herds that I gave you are going to start to multiply. The houses that you build, you can live in them. You're not living in a tent anymore. Crops are going to grow and springs of water are going to be there. You're not going to have to speak to a rock and make it come. It'll just naturally be there. There's fruit growing out of everywhere. Everything's multiplying. And if you're not careful, what you'll do is you'll stop believing that God is giving me my daily bread. You knew God was giving you your daily bread when manna fell from the sky. Who else could do that? But once your crops start multiplying, then you start saying, oh, but I'm providing my daily bread now. Now I'm putting seed in the ground and it's harvesting. Now I'm going out and picking fruit. Now I'm going to the spring and water's coming. And you're forgetting it's God that did it. 
You know, we've all been in these two seasons of life, and you'll be in those two seasons of life. And, 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 and know this, that even in the promised land, the promised land was not the ultimate destination. We talk about it like it was. Can you imagine thinking that the whole purpose of your life is to get to the promised land, and then you're there, and you've got to figure out what your purpose is? Oh, shoot, we're here. Well, we, we built our whole doctrine about getting to the promised land. We didn't know how to live in the promised land. Some of us, that's just all we talk about is where we're getting to, where we're going. And we don't know how to live when we get there. He says, what you need to do when you get there is to remember it is still God feeding you every day. What you learned with manna, you need to keep in the promised land. The great thing about when he fed them manna was this. He gave them specific instructions that had sort of a foolproof mechanism. He said, I'm going to feed you manna that comes from the sky. Some of you know that the word manna is just Hebrew for what's that? Because they were really good at naming things. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatchamacallit. Uh, who's it? What's it? You know, these are their names for food, right? Uh, when, they, uh, when they put up that big copper serpent that, that Moses had to put up so that they'd be healed from the snake bites, uh, some moron kept it and thought this will be a new nice little god for us. And you know the name they came up with? Copper thing. So they're not... They're not brand experts, these people. <laughs> Can you imagine worshiping something that's called copper thing, right? They, God said, I'll give you this manna, and every day you're going to go out and collect it. Every day you get to go out and go, God did it again. Every day you're going to have to go to sleep saying, he's going to do it again. He said, here's the temptation. You're going to want to store up. Because a human nature is, I'm not safe. I need to grab while I can grab. Get it while you can get it, right? I mean, while it's flowing, bring it in, because there might be a day where you don't have anything. That's our orphan mentality, right? We, we can't believe that God's going to be just as good tomorrow, right? So while it is, let's hold on to it. Well, God has set you free from the need to grasp and to hoard and to feel like I can't give this up. He's called you to a life of living with open hands that says, freely I receive, freely I give. I'm going to give as fast as I receive because I know that the God that gave today is going to give tomorrow. Right. So he said, here's what happens. If you're tempted to gather two days worth of manna or three days or a whole week, he says, the minute that day turns, the minute you gather more than just what you need for that day, he said, worms are going to eat it. It won't last more than a day. He said, except on the Sabbath, I want you to gather two days worth and it'll last for two days. So God had this time release mechanism where if they, that, that only works six days of the week, where if they gathered this much manna and they tried to gather a little bit more so they don't have to live by faith tomorrow, worms would eat it. <laughs> but somehow, on the Sabbath it lasted two days. See, because God is teaching them, trust me. Trust me, it'll be there tomorrow. Now, this is training for the promised land because in the promised land, there's not going to be worms that eat your apples. There's not going to be, stuff's not going to magically disappear if you gather too much. In fact, he tells them to build storehouses, barns. 
He says, I will fill your barns, your storehouses with plenty. I will bless them. So he actually tells them to store up. Well, wait a minute. God, are you telling us to store or not to store? He's telling them to store, but there's a reason you have a storehouse. See, if the reason you have a storehouse is because of fear that if I don't store up today, I won't have tomorrow, then your reason is poisoned at the core. And it will cause you trouble. Because the Israelites found this out. They did exactly what God told them not to do. They forgot. And if you read the book of Judges, you find out what happened. All that they built up, enemies came in and stole. Because they forgot. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is this ultimate boogeyman of evil. We go, it's the worst cities in the world. And everybody's got their theory on what the worst thing was about Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you read the book of Ezekiel, it says that Sodom's original sin was that they got full and satisfied and forgot God. Isn't that crazy? No, no. We think Sodom and Gomorrah, they were perverts or they were, they were, they were rapists or they were all these things because they were, they, were, they were violent. They were all these things. But the Bible says that the thing that, that was the core of their sin was they got full and got proud. So how can a God who says the danger of you having all of this abundance is that you become proud, then why is God giving us the abundance? Because he trusts you. And because he's given you the ability to watch your heart. And he's taught you how to guard your heart. He's taught you how to cultivate thankfulness. He's taught you, just like you teach your kids, that there's a period where you put training wheels on. Then there's a period where you teach them that you trust them. Right? Where you're no longer looking out the window, watching for the moment they come home. There's a moment when they have some autonomy, and you transfer trust to them, and you say, I trust you now. And God is bringing the Israelites to a place where he's saying, for 40 years I've taught you how to depend on me. Now I'm going to bring you to a land where you might think I don't need God, but you do. Depend on me just the same. That's what's so powerful about praying this, give us this day our daily bread. You know, you need to pray that. You need to, you need to have that attitude whether you are living day to day or whether you feel like you've got enough to last for 10 lifetimes. Give me this day my daily bread. I had, I had real, real conflict with God about this just as I was getting ready to preach this because I thought I understood it. And I was praying through it and I, I, I heard this voice say to me, why do you have a storehouse? Well, uh, I don't know, saving up for the future. I don't know, this is what I'm supposed to have. Storehouses are good. But a storehouse is not for you to say, I'm storing this up so I don't need God tomorrow. I'm storing this up so I no longer want to live by faith. Here's what I heard that really bothered me. Do you ever grow tired of living by faith? And my answer was yes. There were times where I grew tired of living by faith. And I just said, wouldn't it be nice if tomorrow I didn't have to think about anything? I began to realize the times in my life where I grew weary of living by faith were the times that I grew more distant from God. Because God is not 
a taskmaster or a cruel king. He is a father. Do you know something about the table we have in our house that I treasure? I've got a son who thinks like me and Tia are the best cooks in the world, and you're not going to tell him otherwise. <laughs> you, you can't believe how thankful this kid is when we make something special. The other day, one of our Loon Lake Church members gave me a backstrap of moose and did that nice reverse sear method, you know, where you put it in the oven, you bring it up to temperature, and then you sear it in the skillet. And I burned my arm really bad when I put the meat in and the grease splashed back at me. So I had to go to a conference where I was wearing short sleeves and people thought I just burned myself with cigarettes for fun. That's what it looked like. <laughs> but it was all worth it. It was all worth it with that, my arm burning and on fire. It was worth it because my son said, Daddy, this is like the best. Daddy, I love this so much. He goes, Daddy, this is like the third best thing I've ever eaten in my life. I was like, third, what's the first and the second? He goes, your burgers. I forgot what the second thing was, but there were two other things I made. Sorry, Tia. Tia makes great stuff. But this was so special to me. Thank you. One of the great things about feeding my son is that it's not that he makes me feel good or he validates me, but that, that food brings him to the table. And one of the greatest things about the table is we get to be together. And one of the things that we're getting back as a culture, because I'm hearing it from you, is that we went through a phase where everybody just wanted to eat in front of the TV, but now we're coming back to a place where we're recognizing the table is something that God prepared for us, that as we eat together, we grow together. And you see, I could, me and Tia, Tia and I could make a week's worth of meals for him and stick it in his room and say, here's a microwave. <laughs> Have it. Eat when you want to eat. But you know what? Then we wouldn't find ourselves at the table together. And I believe there's something so precious about de depending on God every day. No, he, maybe in your life the training wheels are off and it's not about Fear, it's not about insecurity. No matter where you are, maybe you're feeling like, well, I don't have a work in the world. Maybe you're feeling like it's a stretch every month. But either way, we're all called to the table every day to say, Lord, feed me what I need today. The Bible tells us that here's what your storehouse is for. Your storehouse is not a fail-safe so that you don't have to trust God tomorrow. Your storehouse is not so that you don't need daily bread that you can just get a year's supply and then ask God next year. No, the storehouse, according to the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is that he would supply you in abundance so that you'd have an abundance to give into every good work. Your storehouse is a place of blessing so that you're not just caring for you and your own, but you're beginning to care for others, and God will bless that storehouse. God will bless those savings. But it blessed those savings when you believe those savings aren't my security, but you believe those savings are a place that God has the right any day to tell me, dip into your savings and give it away. Or maybe he says, that's for your kids. Maybe he says, that's for charity. Maybe he says, you'll find out later what that's for. But one thing it's not for, it's not an excuse to stop trusting God. I want to read you something that Paul said. And we'll close. This morning, I was praying and getting ready to, to come and preach. I got in the shower. 
right before I got in the shower, I got a message on my phone. It was a bill that I wasn't expecting. And as I was getting ready to preach this message, I began to fantasize about what it would be like if suddenly a windfall came out of nowhere and I didn't have to worry about this monthly bill anymore or these other monthly bills. You know those fantasies are just crazy when you start thinking that way, right? Like you, It's always these weird get-rich-quick things. Like I'm going to write a Christmas song and Bieber's going to sing it and I'll make a lot of money. <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought if you had a good idea, you tell someone the good idea and they give you all the money. I walked home probably 10 days in a row from school fantasizing and scheming about how I was going to sell Nestle Quick my recipe. Not my recipe, my idea. I had no recipe. My idea that in addition to chocolate and strawberry, they should make an eggnog flavor that you squirt into your milk and turn it into eggnog. I thought this would make me rich. Because I thought I could just show up at Nestle and go, I have an idea. And they're like, that's genius. Take a bucket of money. <laughs> My idea was you only had to have an idea. You didn't have to do anything about it. You just had the ideas. And this morning, I began to think, what if? And I stopped myself and said, oh, the very thing I'm supposed to be preaching about. The enemy is such a Jerk. <laughs> How did I fall into that trap? So easy. I tried to blame it on, like, I just woke up. I didn't know what I... I know better. Why, right before I start to preach, ah, Satan will attack every revelation God gives you, but he can't take anything that you don't give him. You hang on. So I, I, I just have learned, anytime you grab onto a truth from God, there's an opportunity to let go of it right away. Yep. Mysterious emails out of nowhere. But one thing I learned with Tia and I, there were times where we were really stretched. I mean, I, I quit my full-time job and went full-time in the ministry the year we got married. I was pastoring a church, the church in Loon Lake, which couldn't pay me uh, full-time and... and, and so North American Word Outreach, our missions organization was helping. And, but it was still a stretch, and I was getting married. And then we, Tia got pregnant. I remember the feeling of like, oh, how are we going to do this? And it looked like we had more months than we had money. How's that going to work? And we had, I remember the moment we had a decision. Are you going to tithe? Are you going to tithe? And I remember the thought that came in my head, you can't afford to tithe. And then I heard my parents' voice, what they'd said so many times through the years, we can't afford not to tithe. Yeah. Okay. And then the Lord said, don't stop at a tithe. Give an offering. Oh, okay. You see, we think that there's rich people in the church that are giving offerings all the time, and the rest of us, we just sit back and watch them and say, thank you. But in the Bible, it was a widow who was eating her last meal. Yep that offered the prophet his food. In the Bible, there was a widow who gave the last that she had to live on that Jesus bragged on at the temple. The God uses some of the greatest offerings in the world came from people who had no right to be giving an offering. 2 Corinthians 8, it's the Macedonians who have to beg Paul to take their money. 
Because you know what? Any minister worth his salt is never going to beg you for your money because we didn't come to take something from you. We came to get something to you. But the people of God realized we want to give. So Tia and I just kept giving. And you know what? That season was the strangest season. And I say season, but it's been seasons. Comes up at different times where you're stretched. And it's the most exciting because stuff comes out of nowhere. I kept looking. I kept looking. I, I put all the accounting budgeting software on my laptop. And I said, how is this working? How is it working? And a check would come from nowhere. This would come from here. This would... How are we okay right now? And it was the hand of God. And the rest of my life, I want to live. Even if I have a storehouse full, I want to live in that, that, that belief that, God, you are my daily bread. You're my daily provider. Father, I come to you. And when you know him as Father, it is not a bad thing to ask. It's a good thing to ask. Jesus says, come to my Father and use my name. And whatever you ask, you'll receive. After he prays this prayer, he says, look, I feed the birds. Your father feeds the birds. He clothes the flowers. How much more will he do this for you? He said, stop being worried about this stuff. And listen, I want to tell you, if you are worried, worried and anxiety, it didn't come from God. And the solution to your fear is not to talk yourself out of the fear. The solution to your fear is not to say there's no reason to be afraid. No, there's plenty of reasons if you didn't have God. The solution to your fear is perfect love. Because perfect love casts out all fear. The solution to your fear is to believe, God, my Father loves me. He would not abandon me. In fact, it says, Jesus goes on to say in this very chapter, your Father knows what you need. It is his good pleasure to give it to you. Oh, isn't it wonderful? You see, when we ask without relationship, it breeds stress, anxiety, and fear. But we ask within love and trust in a good relationship with God. It's a joy to depend on him. It's a joy. Just like our son doesn't worry that we're not going to feed him today. He doesn't have to beg. He doesn't have to make us feel guilty so we'll feed him. He just seems to know we want to feed him. And Jesus said, if you being wicked parents... We'll do that for your kids. How much more will a good father in heaven do it for you? You know this verse. In Philippians, Paul says this. Philippians chapter 4. He's just told you whatever your request is, bring it to God with thanksgiving. And he says God will take care of it. But he says this. I rejoiced. This is Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity not that I speak from want or lack, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He's learned the secret. Would you like to know what the secret is? Some, some of you say, I already know. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of my mentors, David McGrew, said, Paul knew how to look for Jesus in every circumstance. He knew how to find Christ wherever he was. 
Do you know there's a secret to going without, but there's also a secret to having a lot. There's people who have a lot and haven't learned the secret of how to live with it. Isn't that interesting that the same secret you need for a time of stretching is the same secret you need when you have over an abundance? It's the same thing. What you needed in the days of manna is still what you need in the days of milk and honey. It's the same stuff. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to look to Jesus. He's the bread that never perishes. I want to encourage you never to never to seek a day where you're not having to live by faith. I, I mean it. I think about Spiro and Tina here. If you've been here long enough, you've heard their story of how they came this close to losing everything and God brought them out. How, how God even used a, a bank manager who said, a bank can't give you a loan, but I will give it out of my own pocket. They lived in the miraculous in that moment, that, that season where it looked like this was it. But they trusted God and they got out of it. But if you know them now, even in their seasons of abundance, especially in their seasons of abundance, they live out of such a thanksgiving for that same hand of God. They, they live in that provision of God that they are the most, some of the most giving people you'll ever meet in the world. When I think of thanksgiving, I think of doing dishes and waiting on tables because every thanksgiving for years, Spiro and Tina would feed the city out of their own pocket. And when anyone asked them why, they'd tell their story again of how God took care of them. Your storehouse has a purpose. Your storehouse has a purpose. And the purpose for your storehouse is not so you, have, you get to stop living by faith tomorrow. The purpose for your storehouse is a place of blessing, a, a place of resource for the, whatever God has for it. But I want you to know, if you're in a season right now where it's feeling like manna, where you say, God, I just wish, I just wish I didn't have to think about this tomorrow. Listen. He tells you even when you think you have to think about it, you don't have to worry about it. Can I tell you this? This goes against everything the world will tell you. You don't have to worry about money. You say, yes, I do. You don't know. I don't even know what I'm going to eat today. Ah, don't worry about it. Easy for you to say, you're up there preaching. You're up there and you've got a job. You know, it's easy for you to say to me, I don't need to worry, but you don't know what I have to deal with. You don't know the prayers I've had to pray. And I want to tell you this, don't worry. Ask your father. I'm not saying it's easy all the time. I know what it's like. But the same secret for you is the same secret for the person who seems to be doing fine. I can do all things through Christ. And I've learned something. Even today, I looked at, I looked at what I was going to wear and I said, man, we haven't gone shopping in a while. We probably should. And it just popped in my heart. It just popped in my heart. The Lord says, when's the last time you asked me for this? Oh, I don't know. Because I'm a schemer. I come up with a scheme. What can we move around? What can we shift around? What can I plan? What can I do? What can, I, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? And I try to find my way out of everything. And the Lord says, stop doing that. Just ask me. Yep. Oh, okay. But I like it better when I'm scheming because then it's me that's providing for me. But God says, no, no, no. You need to come to the table. Come to the table and ask your dad for food. 
Come to your table and know that he wants to give it to you. You don't have to beg. You don't have to make him feel guilty. You don't have to put on your hungry face. You just go, Father, I, it's my good pleasure. And so there was a, I'm closing with this last thing, I promise. There was a conference that me and Tia weren't at because I think we were on our anniversary. We had just got married. But it was a national conference a lot of our friends had gone to. And the speaker said, you know, God blessed your food. God's already blessed your food. So you guys, I don't know why you keep praying over your food. Why do you keep blessing it? God's already blessed it. So that created a stir of those on this side that said, why are we blessing our food? God already blessed it. And those that say, well, I think we should still bless our food. We should still pray over our food. And, and they're going on the back and forth. And we just unknowingly stepped into the fray of this argument. We weren't at the conference, so we didn't know. We sat at the table and there was this awkward moment where everybody was looking at each other like a Mexican standoff. Are we going to pray? <laughs> I never, never had that awkward moment amongst Christians. Are we going to pray? Because this guy said we shouldn't. And the guy asked me, he said, this other friend said, what do you think about it? I said, listen, man, I wasn't there. I don't know what he said, but I know something. That every time I take food, I get a chance to thank God for it. I get a chance to thank God for it. Whether I believe it's already pre-blessed or whether I believe it becomes blessed in that moment, it doesn't really matter. This is my opportunity to put my heart in the right direction and say, thank you, Lord, you provided this food for me. And listen, if you've got $2 or $2 million in the bank, it's still the Lord that provided that for you today. Thank him every day. Thank him, thank him, thank him. Thank him when you feel like you don't have any reason to be thankful. We have this myth about Thanksgiving, that Thanksgiving is about having the, cor the horn of plenty. Thanksgiving is about having a full table, but you know, a lot of the moments when we most need to be thankful are when the table seems empty. And you say, I believe that God is my provider. Thank you, Lord, for giving me food. I encourage you today, if you're in a place where you've got a storehouse, you've got abundance, don't stop living by faith. Look for opportunities to bless people around you. Look for opportunities to be the hand of blessing. Wouldn't it be cool to be the angel that handled the manna? What if you could be the angel that gives the manna to somebody today that needs it? Good. Arlene, why don't we close with your testimony? Come on up.